On top of that, and really I think more shattering than that, is where in the world did the decade of the 2010s go? I mean, ever since Dick Clark died and Ryan Seacrest took over the New Year's Eve party, all right, time just seems to be rocketing by. I don't know what he's done, but time just flies by. And if you're like me, as you start the new year, you're, you start the new year, you're filled with, with good intentions, uh, with grand plans, uh, there's great hopes inside of you, uh, determined that, that this new year is going to be better than last year or perhaps maybe just different. And then in the blink of an eye, January 1st gives way to December 31st. And all those things we intended to accomplish never come to pass. Somehow in the, the busyness of life, uh, in the distractions and the relentless pull of our culture, in the inevitable chaos and the pain of living in this fallen world, coupled with our own lack of discipline, somehow January's intentions get transformed into December's disappointments. And have you ever considered why that actually happens? Have you ever taken the time to investigate why what you intended to accomplish never came to fruition? Or did you perhaps put that off also? Uh, you see, the reason we struggle to accomplish that which we plan is because there is a huge difference between having intentions and living intentionally. You see, intentions are nothing more than what you and I want to achieve. Intentionality, on the other hand, is how you and I achieve that which we want. And the Bible speaks of this very concept when it talks about the whole idea of sowing and reaping. Now, they are uh, agricultural terms, and I am becoming quite an agricultural uh, expert now that my son John has married a a young lady by the name of Lydia who grew up on a 2,000-acre dairy farm in western Ohio. I have been to the family farm. I have hung out with the cows. I found out that cows' noses are cold and wet. Uh, I have petted the cute little calves. I have steered clear of the bulls. That's like a little farm pun there, steering clear of the bulls. Actually, the person that you want to steer clear of is the guy who turns the bulls into the steers who you want to stay away from. Uh, I have witnessed the uh, automated milking parlor. I have uh, seen the planters that sow the seeds and the combines that harvest the crops, all while doing my best to avoid uh, being kicked by the donkey that actually runs the whole farm. And as a result of my two hours on the Demet Dairy Farm, I now consider myself an expert in agriculture. <laughs> so given this expertise, I know that in the spring, farmers sow seeds with the expectation that in the fall, they are going to reap crops. Now, however, if Lydia's dad uh, doesn't sow seeds in the spring, he isn't going to reap crops in the fall. And the same is true of you and me. If we are not intentional about pursuing January's intentions, we will never experience that which we desire in December. 
It might, you know, I might intend to restore a, a relationship that has been broken with an estranged family member, but if that intention doesn't turn into intentionality, it will never, ever happen. I might intend to pay down my debt or lose some weight or learn another language or, or be more loving or improve my education or, or get a new job. That's just an example. I'm not going anywhere, okay? Uh, I might want to crush a, a life struggling addiction, but if I don't pursue those things with intentionality, those intentions never, ever, ever become reality. And most of all, I might intend to grow spiritually, fall in more love with God, more deeply study his word, to serve his people more joyfully, uh, to support his work more generously, but if I don't intentionally pursue those intentions, I will still be as spiritually immature in December as I was back in January. So how do we do that? How do we live lives of unwavering intentionality, especially as it relates to how we interact with God and how we interact with others? I want to take you to a passage uh, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians living in the city of Corinth. It's 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Uh, we're going to examine the entire passage. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, if you can make your way to that. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Don't hesitate to get up and get one or tap your neighbor on the shoulder and ask them to uh, pass you a Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you are able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word. Last night when I started to, to read this passage, I, I hit that first word superfluous and I couldn't figure out how in the world to say it. I was like stunned. It was like a deer in the headlights. So I, ha I said to them and, uh, and I started reading, I'm like, how do you pronounce that word? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> so let's start out. 2 Corinthians 9, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about, to you, uh, boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I say you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food 
will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through, or which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. But their approval of the service, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contributions for them and for others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing of grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, some of you are probably saying to yourself, you know, Pastor Mike, you're trying to slide in a message on giving here and, and, and hiding it under the guise of intentionality. And uh, I'm not trying to do that, but this passage does sound like it's talking about giving and not intentionality. And if you feel that way, you would be right and you would be wrong all at the same time. No doubt is this passage talking about giving, but it's also talking about intentionality. And that's ultimately what I want to focus on this morning. So what exactly is happening here? Uh, in the very first verse, the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, this ministry for the saints. And, and what that is uh, all about is he's talking about a, a collection which he is taking up from all of the churches that he is uh, planted around the Mediterranean Sea for uh, the Christians that are living in the city of Jerusalem and the area of Judea because a severe famine has hit that particular area. And the Christian church in, in Corinth, to which he's writing, is one of the churches that Paul is counting on to provide support to those in the midst of the famine. But here's the problem. The Christian church in Corinth it is one messed up church. If you've ever been a part of a church that was messed up, you, you, you take and you increase the messed upness of the church that you were in by a couple orders of magnitude and you will be getting close to what was going on in the church of Corinth. There are all kinds of theological divisions in this church. Uh, there is sexual sin within the congregation that is being completely ignored by the leadership on top of that, church members are, are dragging one another into courts of law, suing each other. Spiritual gifts are getting misused. People are actually using the wine that's intended for the Lord's Supper to get drunk. And you guys wonder why we use grape juice, all right? And that solves all of those problems. You see, you name the problem, and the Corinthian church had experienced it one time or another, and such, as such, Paul is not completely sure that these characters are actually going to follow through with their intentions. Notice what he says. For I know your readiness of which, you boast about, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has, all, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers... So our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Achaia is the region where the city of Corinth is located. And he's basically telling these guys, look, I have been boasting to everyone about the fact that you have been ready to support this famine 
for the last year. And as a matter of fact, I've been boasting so much about you that other people are excited to give because they know that you're going to give. However, I am not really sure that you're going to follow through with this gift. So I'm sending some guys to basically break your kneecaps. No, he's not saying that. But I'm sending some guys there to make sure that you're actually going to do what you say you're going to do. You see, Paul had no doubt that the Corinthians had, had good intentions, but he wasn't so sure that they were actually going to be intentional. And brothers and sisters, that is us. The vast majority of us, we have good intentions. We want to improve our lives. We want to be a blessing to others. We desire for God to, to be pleased with us. We want others to know the blessing that comes with a, with a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. We want to overcome bad habits. We want to be generous. We want to be more loving. We want to be more like Jesus. And many times we're quick to let everybody know what our intentions actually are. But do we really follow through? Do we intentionally do the things that will ultimately lead to lasting change in our lives, in the lives of our family members and friends, in those of our community, our workplace, and our church? Now, no doubt, some of us do. There are people in our church family who have intentionally done what it takes to save their marriage. I've seen husbands and wives whose marriage was on the very brink of destruction. And one of them, or both of them, are like, no, this is not going to happen. We're going to do whatever it takes. We're going we to we find the forgiveness that we need to, to, to forgive. We're going to apologize. Uh, we're going to deal with addictions and habits and, and behaviors that have, have created this mess, and we're going to fix this. I've seen people make significant changes to their health. We have a, a member of our church family who, who struggled with uh, just losing weight. And one day they decided, you know, I'm going to do something completely radical. They connect, connected with a, a, a medical facility, and they, they, they left the area, and they went on a 17-day fast. And when I mean a 17-day fast, I mean no food. None, zero, nada. No orange juice, no grapefruit juice, nothing. Water. And that was it, under the, the guise or the protection of, of, of medical people. I mean, there was a person who was intentional about wanting to change their health. There have been people who have been intentional about healing from past wounds, who have been intentional uh, uh, about recovering from, from addictions that have beset them for their long time in their lives. They, people who've been passionately in pursuit of the gospel, but they don't do it by themselves. They ultimately do it through the power and the strength of God. Look at what Paul says in verses six through nine. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Those statements about sowing and reaping would have hit directly at the heart of Paul's first century readers. You see, they understood this agricultural concept. They understood that if you put little seed in the ground in the spring, best case, given the weather, is you're only going to reap a little bit of food in the fall. But if you planted much seed in the spring, you are going to, given the weather, reap much food in the fall. In other words, if you wanted to eat in the first century, you needed to be intentional. That's not the way that it works in our culture anymore. In our culture, if you're hungry, there, there's food pantries to go to, there's soup kitchens to hit up, there's uh, meals before school, there's free lunch in the middle of school, there's meals after school. You don't have to work in order to eat here in America. But in Paul's day, when he says those who don't work don't eat, they really didn't eat. And so everything was dependent upon living intentional. Now here's the important thing. If you don't sow, you're not going to get anything. But if you do sow, there's no guarantee that you're going to get anything. If the weather stinks and it's hot and dry, your crops aren't going to grow. But if the weather's great, you're going to get more crops than you know what to do with. At John's rehearsal dinner, I was sitting uh, down with, with Lydia's dad, David, and, and we, were, we were talking about, about his farm. And he has uh, about 140 head of, of cattle that he, that he milks and, and then all the other associated animals that would be on, on a farm. And then on, on this 2,000 acres, he plants crops. And, and I said, you know, how does this work? I mean, how, how do you budget for a farm? He says, this is what I do, Mike. He goes, I base my budget on the production of the milk because I know I'm going to get that every week. I don't bank on a dime of those 2,000 acres that I sow. If I make money off of, those, off of that 2,000 acres, that's a bonus in our lives because I don't know what's going to happen because of the weather. So that's the variable when it comes into sowing. It's the weather. You can sow, but if the weather doesn't go your way, you're not going to reap. Who is in control of the weather? God is. So here's the reality of intentionality. You still need God. If you're not intentional, nothing's ever going to happen in your life. But even if you are intentional, you still need God because God is ultimately the one who takes our intentionality and turns it into something. And that's where verse 8 comes in. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see, this verse is the reason why I can say chapter 9 isn't just talking about giving. Notice the alls that are there. All grace, 
all sufficiency, all things, all time, every good work, which is the same thing as all good works. You see, the principle of sowing and reaping, it doesn't just apply to our finances. It applies to every aspect of our lives. Finances, education, re, uh, relational stuff, vocational stuff, and most important, spiritual stuff. So why don't we sow? Why aren't we intentional? Perhaps it's simply because we forget the whole principle. Perhaps we've grown up having absolutely everything given to us on a silver platter. We're simply blessed because mom and dad did all the heavy lifting and we're riding on their coattails. Perhaps we're just lazy. Let's be honest. Some people aren't intentional because they are just simply lazy. Maybe we're procrastinators. Maybe we are short-sighted and we are unwilling to sacrifice the comfort and the pleasure and the convenience of today for something greater tomorrow. You see, regardless of the reason, the end result is still the same. Whoever sows sparingly is ultimately going to reap sparingly. And so, when you think about that from a spiritual condition, I ask you this question, how's your relationship with God? And how's my relationship with God? Are we actually investing in it? Are we spending meaningful time in prayer? Are we just going through the motions? We wake up in the morning, take a minute or so, throw up God a little quick prayer, and, and then we're out the door on our way. Are we engaging God's word on, on a daily basis or are we just simply satisfied that we come here on a Sunday morning and we stand up for three minutes and the balding Italian guy or the handsome black guy actually reads you God's word? Are we content with that? Are we actively involved in, in serving others or are we content to come to this place and have everybody else serve us. People give us the bulletin, open the door for us, prepare the food for us, watch the kids for us, collect the offering for us, sing for us, preach for us. Are we content with just coming in and, and just taking and taking and taking and never contributing? Are we content with that? Are we really that spiritually immature? Have we... Uh, had to make lifestyle changes in order to financially support the gospel? Or are we consuming every dime that we have on ourselves? When the offering plate comes by and we got a spare buck in there, we kick it in, but otherwise we hadn't even thought about that before we come to church. Are we obediently sharing the gospel with others even when it's uncomfortable? Or are we content with engaging others with nothing more than the weather and the fact that the Patriots lost last night? Some people are happy, some people are sad. You want to, I was telling people, if you want to break into my bank account, you know how I ask you those little questions. One of the questions comes up and says, what sports team do you like to see lose the most the Patriots so <laughs> so I'll let you know now there are lots of reasons why we uh, so sparingly there's fear there's greed 
There's selfishness, there's complacency, there's doubt. And regardless of the reason, the end result is still the same. We sow little and we reap little. And it is then a wonder why some of us are depressed, empty, trapped, abandoned. But it doesn't have to be that way. Listen to verse 8 again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all time, you may abound in every good work. You see, when we begin to so much, when we exchange our intentions for intentionality, God delivers. And this verse, first and foremost, it speaks of God's power. It shows that God is all-powerful. He can do anything that aligns with his character and purposes. Now, you need to understand something. God can't do anything. God can't sin. He's incapable of doing that. But God can do whatever aligns with his character and his purposes. And through that power, God provides us this beautiful thing called grace. And he doesn't just give us a little grace. He gives us all grace, undeserved merit. He gives us that which we haven't earned. So let's just say that this year we decide to live intentionally and we want to intentionally extend forgiveness to that person or the other person who has hurt us. Maybe it's an ex-spouse who makes our life an absolute miserable mess. He or she is greedy. He or she is mean. He, He or she is not helpful. And, and, and it's been driving us crazy. Maybe it's a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend who has, has betrayed us. Maybe it's a, a parent who has failed us time and time again. Perhaps it's an employer who's taken advantage of us. Or, or maybe we lost our job, uh, not justly. Or one of a million different ways that people can hurt us. Whatever is the case, let's just say that we wake up on January 1st, 2020 and say, I need to figure out how to extend forgiveness to this person. Now, what I've discovered in my life is in order to forgive others, it helps to experience forgiveness yourself. Because it's really hard to give that which you haven't first received. And as we begin to pursue forgiving others, typically the first thing that God does, at least in my experience, is he reminds me how much he has forgiven me. And a lot of times he does that by taking me to a passage that absolutely tears my heart to pieces. It's Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we're sinning, while we are sleeping with someone who is not our spouse, while we are cheating on our taxes, while we are indulging in our addictions, while while we are doing the things that we want to do, while we're calling what is good bad, 
and what God says is bad, good, while we're ignoring the plight of the poor, while we're turning a blind eye to the injustice of the world, while we're taking God's name in vain, while we're sowing dissension in this church, in our families, in our government, in our community, or one of a million other ways that people regularly sin against God. Jesus is on the cross crying out to his Father, forgive them for they know not what they have done. That is what is happening in the heavenly realms. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the all grace that God richly pours out in our life. It is that grace that empowers us to be intentional about giving grace to others because God has given grace to us. And how incredibly immature we must be as a Christian if we have received God's generous grace and we are unwilling to extend that grace to another. Now, the all grace that God gives us is also all sufficient. See, it's really cool. God doesn't skimp on grace. He doesn't give us just enough to, for us to make it through one day or, or to forgive one sin or to empower us to resist only one drink or, or resist only one hit or resist only one one-night stand. No, he gives us all grace with all sufficiency. We are able to sow greatly. We are able to live with intentionality because God graciously gives all that we need to accomplish that which we are pursuing. He gives us all the forgiveness that we need to set us free from the unforgiveness that holds us hostage. He gives us all of the power to conquer temptation. I mean, think about this. This is how temptation works. A temptation is put before us by the evil one. And we're looking at that thing and we're like, that looks really good. I want to partake in that. And God promises us what? That, that no temptation has seized us, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. That when we're tempted, he will what? He'll provide a way out. And God puts the way out right there. Here's the temptation. Here's the way out. And we're looking at the two. And more times than not, what do we pick? The temptation. But God has provided a way out every single time. And I want to kick myself in the head when, when, when I choose that path rather than this path. God comes, comes along and he gives us uh, just the patience, which is supernatural, that we can put up with people that we never thought that we could put up with before. And it's not just putting up with them. We're actually enjoying being with them. He enables us to be crazy, generous, even when the numbers don't add up. This, this past Christmas, uh, my, my wife Kathy, she, she's remarkable. Uh, one, of, one of the things that she does to, to, to make our retirement down the road a, a better thing, uh, she doesn't have to work, but she does work, and, and so she cleans houses. She cleans three different houses, and uh, I mean, I really appreciate that. When we were in seminary, Kath and I cleaned houses together uh, in order to make money. And, and it's just, you know, cleaning somebody else's house up is not the most pleasant thing in the world. It's one thing cleaning your own toilet. It's another thing cleaning somebody else's toilet. And uh, so Kath does this. She does it with a joyful heart. And she's got this one uh, family, just a really sweet family that lives up in, in Forest Hills. And, and uh, 
right before uh, the wedding and all that kind of stuff, uh, she went and she cleaned these folks' house and they gave her uh, her money, gave her 90 bucks in uh, cash. And, and Kath had a pair of pants on that didn't have pockets in. Why they make pants without pockets, I'll never, it's completely, you know, ladies' style is just, you need function is what you need, but, uh, and you'll see why you need function here in a second. So Kath just took the cash and she put it in her coat pocket. And then she went about doing her business and, you know, throughout the day she comes home and uh, she discovers the cash is gone. It's fallen out of her pocket. And uh, so I come through the door and, and she's like, oh, Mike. I really messed up today, you know. I'm thinking, like, you know, what you do, kill one of our kids or something, you know. And, you know, because she's, like, really serious. I'm like, what's up? And she goes, well, I, I lost the 90 bucks that the, the people paid me. And I'm like, okay. And she goes, like, I went everywhere. I, you know, I went back to Aldi's. I went to Price Right. I went to Sharp Shopper, all these places. I'm like, you go to all those places during the day? I didn't realize that. No wonder we don't have any money, you know. <laughs> and uh, she goes, I, I just couldn't find it. And I'm like, you know, Kath, it's Christmas. Well, maybe God knew somebody that needed that 90 bucks more than we needed. You know, probably someone was walking down the aisle in Aldi's, just trying to figure out how they're going to pray for Christmas dinner, and laying on the floor... It's not Kathy's 90 bucks. It's ultimately God's 90 bucks. And that person's like, wow, look at how God's blessed me, you know? And, you know, but I mean, but, you know, that 90 bucks, it's not a big deal to us. We're okay. Because what God, he, he's so gracious. He, he provides things with all sufficiency. And, and like the next day, I opened the mail and we ended up getting a, like a $103 check from our, our retirement company because... The, you know, the big corporation in Wall Street violated some rule and they had to make up money or something. They send us a check in the mail. Totally makes up for the money we didn't have. Because God provides all sufficiency. He, he fills us with more love for others than we can possibly imagine. And one of the reasons that our intentions don't turn into intentionality is simply because we don't think he's going to do that. Or, or we don't think that we can do that. We, we don't think we have enough love or enough patience or enough time or enough money or enough this, that, or the other thing to, to be intentionally, intentional, I mean. And, and while we might think that, it's simply not true because God, he doesn't hold back. When we're living for him, he provides all that we need for his glory and for our joy. But he doesn't stop there. It says God does this in all things at all times. In other words, there is nothing beyond God's grace. His sufficient, grace is sufficient in every area of our lives. He'll provide for our marriage. He'll provide for those cute little crumb crunchers that are down in the nursery right now that you have. He's going to provide for, for those crumb crunchers who are turn into smelly middle schoolers who lose their minds. Later on, he provides for, for them when they're in college and they're spending all of your money. They, he, later on, they become grown kids and they're driving you absolutely insane because they're trying to live their own lives and they're not doing it the way that you want them to do it. He provides for all of that. He provides for, for people in their singleness. And in their widowness, he always provides. 
He provides for us at work, in ministry, and in our health. You name an area of your life. And when we surrender to him and when we begin to live intentionally for his glory, God not he will provide and he provides according to his goodwill and his good plan, not necessarily our plan. He'll do it his way. And he does all of this, look at the end of verse 8, so that we may abound in every good work. After all, doing every good work is what we've been created to do. Ephesians chapter 2, that beautiful uh, couple verses about grace. It says, for grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared what? Beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, Brothers and sisters, we don't have to live lives of mediocrity. We don't have to be weighed down by the endless cycle of joyless spiritual stagnation. We don't have to be trapped in unforgiveness or guilt or shame. We don't have to settle for well-meaning intentions that don't ever materialize into anything at all. We're God's workmanship. We have been purchased by his son's blood. We are the recipients of Christ's eternity-transforming grace. And God has work for us to do. Work that we are to pursue with intentionality. Work that can transform our lives, not can, will transform our lives. Work that will transform the lives of our family members, the lives of those in our church, in our workplace, in our community, in our world. And all of it is powered by Jesus' all-sufficient, all-encompassing, ever-present grace that flows from his birth, life, death, and resurrection. And as we begin this new year, I want to share uh, something with you that our staff and our leadership team are going to be very intentional about for the balance of at least my time here at Living Water because I'm going to give the next 10 years of my life this. For the last 20 years, we have worked very hard on glorifying God by developing a diverse family of fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who reproduces that devotion in others. That has been our purpose statement from the very beginning, from the time that, that it was just four couples in Kathy and my living room there on Latchmere Drive. And God has been faithful about building a diverse family of followers of Jesus Christ. You just look around this room and it's evident. And it has been the greatest joy of my life to watch that from the front seat. To watch how this congregation has transformed from vast majority Caucasian in 2001 to this incredibly beautiful group of people from every different walk of life, ethnicity, different countries, different life experiences, folks who are rich and poor, folks who have been in prison, folks who have guarded those people in prison. I mean, it is amazing 
what God has done. But God didn't just call us to develop a diverse family of followers of Jesus. He called us to develop a diverse family of fully devoted followers of Jesus who reproduce that devotion in others. And while that has happened to some extent, we have a very, very long way to go. So we're about to get very intentional about helping every one of us to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So intentional that for some of you, this place is going to become extraordinarily uncomfortable because we are going to push you to spiritual maturity. We are going to push hard. There are going to be some of you who are like, I, I didn't sign up for that. I'm checking out. And you know what? That'll break my heart, and I'm going to miss you, but we're not stopping. And in order to do this, we realized that if we wanted to hit a target, we needed to know where we were aiming. And so we identified eight traits of what we believe is a biblical picture of a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do everything in our power to help every one of us exude those traits. So, so let me show them to you right now. This is the first one. A growing allegiance for Jesus. We desire for every person, myself included, for our number one allegiance to be to Jesus. Not to my spouse, not to my kids, not to my favorite football team, and most of all, not to my political party. Because we're coming into a crazy election season right now. And we're all gonna get all up about what party is this and what party is that. You know, my party is Jesus. And that's what we need to be about. This is the second one. This is the second one. There we go. A discernible spirit of repentance. In other words, we want to help you and me learn what repentance looks like. For the last 20 years, I have been driven crazy by people who aren't willing to own their garbage, for people who aren't willing to own their sin, for, for husbands who aren't willing to, to own what they've done against their wives, for wives who aren't willing to own what they've done against their husbands, for employees who aren't willing to, to recognize that they have been terrible employees, for, for employers who aren't willing to recognize that they have been terrible employers. for people who just, they don't want to own it. And when you don't own it, you'll never recover from it. I mean, at the heart of Christianity is repentance. What does Jesus say? Repent and believe the gospel. It's about owning our sin. And it's not just about owning our sin. It's about turning 180 degrees away from our sin. To, to crucify it. You, you know, 
There's nothing wrong with letting people know that you've blown this. You had an affair? Own the stupid thing. Don't do it again. Hopefully your spouse will have it in them to to forgive you. Perhaps they won't, but own it. You're struggling with pornography? Own it. Probably not a guy in this room who that's not a temptation for. Own it. Turn from it. Don't be trapped in it anymore. Why in the world we're so stinking prideful? Pride sends us right to hell. Own our garbage. Number three, an unwavering devotion to and study of God's word. You know, you all come in here every week and, and, and you, you hear me flap my lips or you hear Pastor Ben preach or you hear Mike Bongo preach or whatever. You know, that's great. It's wonderful that we've studied. But you know, the reality is this is helpful but, but it's like 5% of what you actually need. I mean, my, my picture of preaching is kind of a gross picture, actually. It's this. You, you know the little birds that are in the nest with their mouths wide open? And they're waiting for mom to come along. And mom brings the worm, and she chews up the worm, and she spits it into the bird's mouth. That's what preaching is like. I do all the work. I spit it out to you. It gives you nourishment for a while, but you don't want to live in a, in a nest with your mouth open the whole time. You got to get in this. You got to read this thing. You got to study this thing. It's got to be important. And naturally, we don't want to do that. In our natural state, we don't want to do that. We want to, we want to get up in the morning. We want to get on with our life. I get it. I struggle with the exact same thing. If you want to become like Jesus, you gotta, you got to be in this thing. Next one. A renouncement of self as the authority and focus of our lives. We're about to have a, a membership meeting at the, end of this, at the end of the second service to add some things in our uh, Constitution that talks about the sanctity of life, talks about gender issues, talks about how people should be treated. It's insane that we actually have to put this in our organizational documents. But the fact of the matter is this, that people live their lives wanting to be their own authority. They don't care that this says that it's not right. So they jump through all kinds of hoops to make this say simply what it doesn't say. It's crazy that we have to do this. But we have to because that's where our society is. Because our society says that which is good is bad, and that which is bad is good. And the reason they do it is because that's what is popular, that's what feels good, that's what, what our mind which, and our heart, which deceives us, tells us. There are things in here I do not like. I have a brother-in-law 
who I love with every fiber of my being, who, who is a practicing homosexual. I love him. I spend time with him. I spend time with his partner. What Tommy is doing is sin. Period. When I lust after a woman, what I'm doing is sin. His sin, no greater than mine. But to sit there and to say that that behavior, which the Bible says is wrong, is not wrong, is because we want to be our own authority. And those who are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, they reject themselves as authority. And folks, we focus on our lives way too much. Way too much. We've got a lot of first world problems. What kind of car am I going to buy? In Ecuador, the question is, what kind of bus am I going to ride on? Next one. A life of submission and sacrifice to the cross. There are going to be things that this tells us that we need to do that we don't want to do. And the question is, will we submit? Will we bow our knee at the cross and say, Jesus, what you call me to do, I'm going to do. Where I'm supposed to go, I'm going to go. Will I live a life of sacrifice? Will I actually pick up my cross and follow after Jesus? Will I do that? Am am I willing to to be rejected and ridiculed by, by the world? Or do I want the approval of the world? What do I want? Am I willing to to lose my job for that which I believe? Am I willing to do that? Or do I just want to have my life to be comfortable? Next one. A recognition of God's ownership of all things including one's possessions. That cuts right to the heart of America. That God owns it all. That I'm his steward. That I need to be generous with the things that God has given me. I don't need to go through life accumulating all this stuff and hoarding it for myself. I need to generously give, not just to the, to, to the church here, but to those around me, to family members and friends and neighbors and people I don't know. I think there's one or two more. I think there's two more. Maybe we'll go. <laughs> Even if there's not two more, I'll make a third or second one up, right? An evident love for God displayed through obedience. What do we learn in God's word? You love me, you obey me. Simple concept, crazy hard to do. It's true with us and God and his parents, you know, really true with us as parents. When our kids obey, they demonstrate that they love us. When they disobey, they demonstrate that they love themselves. Is there one more, Eric? Okay, I thought there was. 
a genuine concern for the good of others at personal cost. That you know what? You took advantage of me. That's on you, not on me. That we love people even when it's costly to us. I experienced that. Told, told the one service a couple weeks, months ago, I, I, I wrecked a friend's $105,000 airplane. Totally destroyed the thing. Walked away from it. He could have been crazy mad at me. He loved that thing. He says instead, he says, what, you know what, Mike? It's the plane. You're safe. You can get another one. Concerned about my good at his personal cost. How, how many people care about their stuff so incredibly much? They're not willing to sacrifice anything. It's not just your stuff, it's your time. I mean, perhaps time is our most valuable possession. What are you going to do when somebody calls you up and says, you know what, my house just got flooded. I need someone to come and help me. And you got other plans. What are you going to do? Who's more important? The other person? You know, the crazy thing about the Bible says, love God, love others. You never see yourself in that part. But we're, that's the first thing that we love, right? I mean, it's us. We want it to be costly. We want it to be costly. It's going to be costly. That, brothers and sisters, that's where we're going. We're going to push this in our small groups, in our Bible studies, from the pulpit, in personal conversations, we're, we're, we're at the infancy of developing this. But we're going to push it hard. And we're not going to stop pushing it. Because time is short. Our world is getting crazier by the minute. Evil is running rampant. And so is shallow Christianity, one filled with people with great intentions but no intentionality. And at some point, here in America, it is going to become costly to claim the name of Jesus. Jesus says this very thing in Matthew 24. And Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and you will see, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, these are all, all these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation to put you to death. 
and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus isn't just talking there about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He's also speaking of his second coming. And I don't know when that's going to happen. It might be tomorrow. It might be next month. It could be next year. It could be five years from now, 50 years from now, 500 years from now. But regardless, when that day comes, I want you and I want me to be the ones who are prepared to endure and to be saved. And I, in the balance of our staff and leadership team, plan on being extraordinarily intentional about that. And we're going to do this together, and we're going to do it under the covering of prayer, and we are going to watch God transform our lives into becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who reproduce that devotion in others. We won't be able to keep our mouths shut about how good Jesus is and wonderful he is. We, we, we will be quick to forgive others. The, the sin that is besetting us, we will be able to, to conquer those things through the power of God's spirit. And we will be better as individuals. And we will be better as a church family because we look more like Jesus. Lord God, thank you for my friends. Thank you for this time. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, work powerfully in the life of our church family. I pray for those who are hurting and struggling, uh, Lord, who are discouraged. Uh, Lord, that you would gird them up. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that through your spirit, that you would empower us all to become more like your son. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare to close?